Well, good morning again. Oh, what a great song. A sing of my Redeemer. It's precious blood. Wow. It's a good song. I haven't heard it in a while. Well, as you all know, we've been in the book of Colossians now for a little while. Uh, we're in Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 6 through 8 this morning. And as we've moved through the book of Colossians, one thing that has been apparent to us is that Jesus Christ is central to this letter, right? We, we've talked about the supremacy of Jesus Christ in the long section that we had in verses 15 through 20 where Jesus Christ is supreme over creation, right? We've talked about how Jesus Christ is supreme over the new creation, right? His church, us as individuals, and ultimately the, the new heavens and the new earth, that Jesus is supreme. And then we discussed for a little while, as Paul delves into his own ministry, the, the focus of the Word of God in worship of Jesus Christ and understanding who He is, what He's done, and the expectations that God has for our lives. And then we moved on until chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, in which we dealt with the centrality of Christ and the, the focus of Jesus Christ as central to our lives and central to all ministry activities in the church. Well, today we're going to be delving into a beginning of a, a larger section on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, the sufficiency of Christ. And in this large section, which goes from verse 6 of chapter 2 all the way to verse 15. We obviously won't make it there today. But this large section is the sufficiency, that Jesus Christ is sufficient for your lives. Now, Paul opens up this section, and we're only going to deal with a couple of verses, but he basically goes through and he says, I have a, I have a command to walk and a, and a warning to heed. And what we're going to be dealing with today, we're going to be dealing with the topic that uh, has been on my heart for a few weeks as I've considered this passage and I, and I thought about what the Lord wanted me to say. It, we're going to be dealing with philosophy. And when you think about philosophy, what comes to your mind? What, what's some of the first things that come to your mind, right? Greek guys, right? Thinking about uh, confusing topics, right? Or maybe some stuffy Europeans, trying to find their place in the world, some Germans, right? Well, philosophy in its basic sense is the love of wisdom, right? Philo is brotherly love. Sophie is wisdom, the love of wisdom. That's a basic sense, right? So Jordan, your next child could be Sophie. You've got truth. You do wisdom, right? <laughs> so the basic sense, it, it's, but it's, it's more than just an intellectual exercise or a set of facts, Right? Or even a methodology. It's how mankind views himself and the world around them. Right? So Chuck Swindoll always says, he says, philosophers are people who talk about something they don't understand and then they make, it, make you think it's your fault. Right? Philosophy is saying what everybody knows in a language that no one can understand. But philosophy, in its basic sense... It is a search for clarity, understanding regarding the whole of reality and, and the basic questions of life. So from a biblical point of view, when you talk about philosophy, you're talking about a worldview that you live by. So in that sense, every one of you is a philosopher, right? Every one of you has a worldview. It's how you view reality and your world and your purpose in this life, right? So we're all trying to understand our world, understand our purpose in this world, our future, our origins, our conditions, right? And for those that don't know or accept the truth of God in His Word, it's the musings of and I like what MacArthur says, it's the musings of unregenerate men trying to determine ultimate truth apart from God. Right? So man cannot begin with himself 
and arrive at a knowledge of the truth. He will always, Romans 1 says that he will always reject truth and he will substitute it for his own ideas. All right? So modern philosophy offers mankind no hope because modern philosophy can't come to a true knowledge of the truth because they attempt to do so without God. So it leaves man and woman in despair and in darkness. Right? The world system that we live in, and this is the way we have to look at it as believers, the world system we look in is a diametrically opposed to God and us and the truth. Right? 1 John chapter 5 says the world lies in the power of the evil one. Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the light of the gospel. Right? Men's hearts are darkened. We're alienated from God. Colossians 1. Right? We're, we're hostile to God. Man is hostile to God in his mind. Right? So when we think about philosophical systems, and that's what the Bible talks about when he talks about philosophy, worldviews, there's only black and white. Right? As, as John says in 1 John, there's the children of God and there's the children of the devil. Right? So anything that sets itself up against the truth is error. And so as we think about philosophy, we think about the truth and we think about error. What is true and what is false. And when you think about truth, truth is defined as reality as God sees it. Right? So many people we live in or live in this world, they, they think about their lives, and they follow their lives, and they, they kind of follow the uh, philosophy of, uh, you know, the chairman of the board, Frank Sinatra, right? And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway, and more, and much more than this, I did it my way, right? Frank Sinatra, that's, that's the world we live in. I did it my way. Brethren, we have the truth. And as we're going to talk about this morning, there, there is God's way of looking at this world. God's truth is reality according to how He sees it versus the reality of the world opposed and a world without God. So let's go ahead and look at the text. We're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 2. Just a couple verses today, verses 6 through 8. Therefore, as you have received Jesus Christ, or excuse me, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So today we're going to be looking at the beginnings of Paul's call to believers for them to hold fast the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. In this section, we're going to be looking at two things, two points this morning. The way of the truth and the way of error. The way of the truth and the way of error. So if you will, look down with me in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Right? So he says... Walk in Him. The word there, walk, is perpeteo. It means the conduct of your life. It's how you live. Paul loves this word, right? He's already used it once in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, where he says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, right? He uses it over and over in Ephesians. You know, walk in light, walk not that as Gentiles, walk filled with the Spirit, walk in love. It's his favorite word for how he wants believers to live. When he says, I want you to live a certain way, he uses walk because it gives that picture of, of a slow progression, right? We don't instantly become mature. We live our lives walking with the Lord. We even use that term in church. Well, how are you doing? Well, I'm walking with the Lord. It's a slow walk as we become more and more Christ-like. So he commands them, this is an imperative, walk. He says, just as you've received Christ, so live your life. When he says received Christ, it's interesting. What he's talking about here is the, the transmission of knowledge about Jesus. He's talking about the gospel message. 
In verse 3 of chapter 1, he says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Right? So they, just as you've received Christ, just as you've heard the gospel, the truth about Scripture, live that out. Right? Just knowledge on its own does not benefit you. It's knowledge plus action. Belief, right? Principle and practice. Right? It's more than just a simple belief. And not only have they, they received Christ, but they heard the message through Epaphras. Verse 7, it says, Just as you have learned it through Epaphras, their fellow bondservant, their pastor, he's been teaching them the truth. What we learn should always affect our behavior. Right? Knowledge on its own. You grow a lot in knowledge, and this was me in Bible college. You grow a lot in knowledge. What does it do? It equals pride. Right? The idea is you, you grow in knowledge, you grow in grace as well. You're walking with the Lord. You're putting into practice the things you're learning. Right? To just learn truth and then to turn away and walk away without any response to it in your heart is what James describes as being a, a hearer of the Word and not a doer. It's like we see ourselves in a, in a mirror and we, we see ourselves and then we walk away and we don't even care what we've, what we've seen, right? How many ladies you are going to walk out of the house with your hair a mess, right? Oh, oh my hair's a mess. Oh, I'm just going to go out there. Who cares? Guys, you know, we're, we're going to look at least moderately decent. We look at the mirror, yeah, all right, well, I can get away with that, you know, and keep going, right? But we're at least going to respond. So he says, just as you've received Christ, respond to that. And it's interesting here because he uses Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, this is an expression that is nowhere else found in Scripture because he combines all this together. And in the Greek, it literally reads, The Christ Jesus the Lord. So he's drawing attention to the fact that, that of all the things he's been saying about Christ, he basically sums up a lot of that here in this one sentence. Jesus is a, it's a historical man who lived. He was a real person in Nazareth. Right? He was fully God. He was fully man. He, he lived a perfect life, fulfilling the demands of the law. And he was sacrificed and died on Calvary and rose again on the third day and ascended to the Father. So Jesus was a historical person. There are many in this world that will say, well, he wasn't a real person or he was made up by the apostles. No, Jesus was a real person. Not only was he a real person, he was fully man, but he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the expected one, the promised one that would restore Israel and save them. Now, there's a pause on that. That, that return of Christ or when Christ returns, that will happen and Israel will be restored Right? Those that have rejected Him will see upon though the one that they have crucified and they will be in sorrow and they will repent and Jesus Christ will rule from Jerusalem. And then Jesus the Lord, He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is Lord. He is supreme over your life. So this expression is unique. Paul is writing this. He said, look, if you receive Jesus Christ, you received Him fully as, as God, the man Right? The Lord of your life, so live that out. Right? Walk in a manner that's pleasing the Lord, knowing what He's done for you. And he said, so, and I love what he says, so walk in Him. Right? We, we don't live our Christian life without the power that we need, the strength that we need. Right? How impossible that would be if God saved us and then said, all right, there you go, now live out. Live out a holy life, right? We, we, don't, we have the resources that we need. We have the Holy Spirit that indwells us, that empowers us. Now, there, there is a necessary obedience there. Like one of the things I used to teach the youth when I was, when I was doing youth at the previous church is you, you obey what you know and you'll grow, right? You, you submit to Christ as Lord. You, you obey the things you're learning. You, you're confessing and repenting sin and you grow. And, you, and God reveals more of the depths of the sin of your own heart, right? I love talking to believers that have walked with the Lord for a while because they have a keen understanding of their own sinfulness, right? We, we grow in our walks with the Lord and we, stand, we can't help but say, well, Lord, how great a sinner am I still? 
I've walked with you this long. I've seen much growth, but I'm more aware of your holiness and I'm more aware of how far I have to go. Right? So we, we walk, we live, we, we, we live our lives based off of what we know. I was reading a story recently about the Sultan of Oman. And don't, please, I'm not going to say his name because I won't get it right. But he came to power in 1970. And it was interesting. He wanted to modernize Oman and, and bring it more into a, a Western world where it was less isolated. Well, he grew up uh, in school and he went to an English military academy. And then he served in a Scottish regiment. What was interesting is he, he developed a love for Western military bands. In particular, he loved the Scottish bagpipes. So when he came back to Amman and he, and, he, and he became ruler, he instituted several different bagpipe bands. And they were only filled with Omani musicians. And so now, years later, some of the, some of the best bagpipe military bands in the world are in Oman. They rival the ones of Scotland, right? And how, you know, think about the odd, those odd little tidbits. Well, but he was so influenced and so affected by his time that it, it bore itself out in his life, the rest of his life, right? He loved the music. He loved the, the culture. He loved the, the challenge of the, the bagpipes. And he instituted that in his home country. You see, what you learn and what you love should affect the way you live, right? When we love Christ and we receive Jesus Christ as Lord, we live in Him, we obey His Word, we keep Him central to our lives, and knowing that He is sufficient for His people, for His body. So then Paul moves on. He says, look, not only after he gives this command, he says, so walk in Him. Live this way based on what you've learned, right? All the things that, that Epaphras has taught them, all the things that Paul's been talking about. He said, look, you, you've learned these things and you've received Jesus Christ. Now live it out. And he says, look, let me describe what a characteristics of that looks like. Let's talk about, if you're, if you're walking with the Lord, what does that look like? And he says, first of all, there's, there's participles here. He says, being Firmly rooted, right? He said, now you're firmly rooted. It's an agricultural metaphor, right? For those of you that planted plants, any kind of potted plant, you planted crops, you have to put them in the ground, right? You have to put them in good soil, right? It's, it means firmly fixed and grounded, Right? And it's interesting, it's passive because it's something that God does. It's, it's, what he's talking about here is your salvation. When you come to Jesus Christ, you're, you're firmly rooted. You're planted in the knowledge of the truth. The soil is Christ. And in Him we have a, our source of strength, of stability. Right? Our roots go deep in His Word. Right? I love what Psalm 1 Psalm 1 says, if you guys want to flip over to me, or flip over with me real quick. Psalm 1, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, talking about his word. And in his law he meditates day and night. And this is key. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields his fruit in season, and his leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he will prosper. Right? You're talking about being firmly planted in Jesus Christ. You, you, you grow in your roots stronger and stronger in your faith in Christ the longer you live. One of the things I've seen over the years, and like I said, for those of you that walk with the Lord, you can testify of the faithfulness of God. Right? You've seen, I've seen him answer so many of my prayers over the years, right? Some yes, some no, some wait for his timetable. But I've seen God answer so many of my prayers. See how faithful he is, right? Your faith grows, right? If God gave us everything we wanted immediately, what kind of faith would we have, right? How do we actually grow? How are those roots like, like, a, like a huge tree, right? The roots go deeper and deeper and deeper, to help keep that tree stable. How will our roots grow in faith if we're given everything we want, right? 
So we trust God. We're rooted in Him. We're planted by Him. But not only are we rooted, He said we're also being built up. And then He switches from an agricultural metaphor, and now He says an architectural metaphor. The idea here is He's laying one layer upon another. Right? He's, he's building that house. He's building that building one block, one stone block at a time. He's laying, he's laying this down. Right? It's also passive, and this is God. God is the one that builds us up, that helps us to grow. Now, there is an obedience to that, like I mentioned before, right? We, we have to respond to God. There's that, that bumper sticker I see. I don't see that much anymore, thank, thank the Lord, but I used to see it all the time, and it would be, you let go, I let go and let God, right? Now, I understand the sentiment. The sentiment is, well, you know, we want to let God have control of our lives, but there is an aspect where it's not just building up where, oh, we're just, Lord, help me to mature, help me to grow. I'm just going to, you know, come to church, I'll listen, live my life, and I'll grow as a Christian. There's an obedience that's required. We respond to the truth, right? And we grow. And God is building us up. He's conforming us to the image of Christ, I love what Peter says in 1 Peter. He says, as living stones, we come to him as living stones, and he builds us up, and we're built on the cornerstone, or the foundation stone of Jesus Christ. He's the chief cornerstone, right? He's the stone of stumbling and offense, and we're built up. So God, think about it this way. God takes, just like a person who in a quarry, he takes that big chunk of rock. <laughs> Boom! It's a big chunk of rock. That's all it is. All misshapen, different shapes. And then what does a, what a person, stonemason, start doing? They start chipping away at the things they don't want, right? Making that big, huge, round boulder into a block that you can use to build a temple or build a building, right? You don't just take rock out of the ground and it's a perfect shape. You have to mold it and shape it and chip away what's not acceptable, that's not useful. Well, that's what God does in our life. Right? He's building us up, and He's chopping away those things in your life that He doesn't want, that's not useful, that's not acceptable. So we're being built up. Right? Philippians 1, For I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Right? So is it us working out our salvation, or is it God who is working in us? Yes, that's the answer. Right? We obey, we respond. So not only are we firmly rooted, we're being built up, but He says also we're established. Now He switches again, He switches to another, another metaphor. He switches to a legal metaphor. And it means to confirm or validate or guarantee. What he's talking about here is assurance, right? So firmly rooted deals with your faith. Being built up deals with the outward character. And now he's talking about your assurance, right? It's once again, it's passive. You're, you're established by God. You're confirmed in your salvation to the end. He's talking about eternal security here, right? It's the objective faith, the, the faith that you have believed, right? You know, think about Romans 8. Uh, you know, I love Romans 8. We often, we often just misquote it. Well, or not misquote it, but we leave out all the important parts, right? We, we talk about how Romans 8, that everything that happens, we know that God causes, here I'm quoting it, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are according to His purpose. Now, that is a true statement. But what, what's, what are we called? What's the purpose that God has called us for? And that's why you have to keep going. The purpose is this, verse 29. For those He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's the purpose to which He's called you. That's the ultimate good for you, is that you would be like Jesus Christ. Right? And so He's going to establish that. He's going to make sure that happens. And He does that by, what? When you're saved, firmly rooting you in the faith. And then, he, then He's building you up. He's chipping away the things in your life that's unacceptable. He's revealing the sins in your life. The things that, that separate you from Him. Right? He's establishing you. Those that believe, that truly believe, will persevere to the end. Paul even says it himself in Colossians. He says, if you continue... In the faith, firmly established, and not 
move away from the hope of the gospel. He's basically saying, like, you will be presented before Christ if you continue. And if you continue, you demonstrate continually that you are a believer. Right? Alex and I were talking the other day, and we were, we were talking about, <clears throat> you know, Joshua Harris is a famous uh, Christian, uh, I guess, author, pastor in the States, and he's kind of, walk, he's basically walked away. He's become apostate. He's rejected the, the truth. He's rejected Christ. And he says, you know, I don't, I don't really believe any of that anymore. Well, he demonstrates he, he never was a Christian, right? It's not about knowledge. There's plenty of people that have head knowledge, right? They have good theology. But do they internalize that? Do they live that out? Do they submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Demons have beautiful theology. Think about it. Demons know who God is. You know, he's holy, righteous. They know Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. That he died on the cross for the, for the sins of man. They have great theology. But they will not submit to his lordship. Right? One sin for an angel and his demon. And there's no redemption for angels. Right? So if you believe you will be a true believer, you will continue in the faith. You will be established by God. And when it comes to security... When it comes to assurance, assurance comes through knowledge and assurance comes through your walk. So if you're struggling with assurance, then you need to go to the Word of God and you need to remind yourself of the promises of Scripture and what Christ has done for you. Ephesians 1, the calling of the, 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 calling of the Father, right? The sacrifice of the Son, the sealing of the Spirit, the members of the Trinity at work in your salvation. If you're struggling with assurance, you need to look at your life and say, well, am I being obedient Right? Because you, if, you're, if you're rebelling against Christ and refusing to submit to Him, then you're not going to have the Holy Spirit empowering you and strengthening you. Right? Because you're sinning against the Holy Spirit. So you'll lack assurance. So Paul is talking about here, look, the characteristics of a walk, that a walk, a way of truth, a life lived according to what you've learned and heard in Christ, who He is, is you're firmly rooted, you're being built up, and you're established. And then he says, interesting enough, he says, look, you're overflowing with gratitude. Right? You're, you're living a life of thankfulness. Overflowing has to do with a superabounding and abundance without lacking. It's, it's a life of continual and regular thanksgiving to God. Right? You know, you, you want to you wanna crush your joy. Right? You want to you wanna crush the joy that you have. Live a life of discontentment. Right? Because when we're discontented, we're dissatisfied, what we're saying is that what God has given us is not enough. I want more. Right? We don't ever think about it like that. Right? We, the eye of man is never satisfied. Right? So whenever we see something, we want it. But it's more than just like, I'd like to have that brand new, you know, Maserati, right? But it's another to, to start lusting after it and thinking about, you know, oh, well, maybe I could get it. And then being upset, well, I can't afford it. And then saying, well, if I sell everything I have, I could live in that car, you know? We start thinking about those things, right? And, we go, we go, and, then, and then after we figure out that still won't work, then we, we become almost bittered because our next-door neighbor buys a brand new Maserati, Right? You see, it's a discontentment, it's a dissatisfaction. And ultimately, it's a discontentment and dissatisfaction with God. That's how we, that's how we lose our joy, right? Because we become so self-focused that we're not thankful, we're not the opposite of that. That's what Paul's saying, don't be dissatisfied and discontent. Instead, thank God for what He's giving you, right? It's about responding to, to, to His mercy and His grace because really, if you think about it, do we deserve anything? Right? We don't really deserve anything. We don't really deserve our salvation. Right? While, we were still, while we were sinners, yet sinners, Christ died for us. Right? We don't deserve anything. So whatever we get is good. Right? Family and friends and a house to live in and air conditioning. Right? right? You get a 40-something 40, degree day and you better believe you're thankful for air conditioning that didn't exist 100 years ago. Right? I, live, I grew up in the South, you know, 80, 90, well, so I'm trying to translate it. It'd be like 40 degree days with, with almost, you know, 90% humidity. You're sweating, right, to death. Thank goodness for air conditioning. Praise God, right? Those little things we, we don't even think about. Hot showers, toothpaste, right? 
How, how much are we blessed with we don't give God glory for? So worship, it, it demonstrates a life lived in response to the truth. Worship is, is, is that thankfulness. And I read a story as I was thinking about thankfulness. And for those of you who don't know Matthew Henry, he's an uh, old Puritan. He's got several, several different commentaries. He has a complete commentary on the, the Bible. And it's interesting, I came across this from Matthew Henry, Henry's diary. And he was, he was robbed, robbed one morning. And he basically says this. He says, look, in his diary, he says, Let me be thankful first because I've never been robbed before. Right? Second, because although he, the robber, took my purse... He did not take my life. Third, because although he took everything I possessed, it wasn't very much. And fourth, because it was I who was robbed, and it was not I who was robbing someone else. Right? He, he looked at, I will, be, I will give thanks in everything. And here he is, he's giving thanks to the Lord for being robbed. But it, it's about perspective. All right, so we walk in the truth. We grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it's the Christian life. It's living out what we know. Right? It's not just coming to church, hearing some truth, going on with your lives, and not letting it permeate your hearts. Right? We respond by living out the truth. So not only does Paul say, all right, well, I want you to live this way and walk this way. But he gives a warning. Verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So when you think about this, Paul, the, the word here, see to it, is actually another imperative. It literally means watch yourself, right? So, you know, if Greg, Greg took me up to the Flinders Ranges and we were riding around, we, let's say we hired one of those big Polaris ATVs and we're going along, we're having a good time, and all of a sudden Greg gets close to the edge of one of these cliffs, I'm not going to be like, hey, Greg, you need to stop, you need to slow down, you're going... I'm going to be like, watch it! Hit the brakes! Stop! Look! That's the idea here, Paul. Paul's like, watch yourself. Look, if, if you're walking with the Lord, a great measure of discipleship is, are you walking with the Lord and then you watching out for error? And that's what Paul's saying. He said, he's like, watch yourself, guys. Look out. You've got, you've got error on the horizon. It's right there. Look, the cliff. You're about to fall off. We can do that later, by the way, Greg, if you'd like. So, <laughs> so you know, that's the keys to discipleship, walking and watching. And, you know, it's interesting because all the other participles, all the other uh, aspects of walking before were, were done by God with the exception of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving was an active voice. We were to do that. Well, here's another command, and this is done by us. We're the ones that are to be watchful, right? Where I'm from, along the coast of North Carolina, it's called the Graveyard of the Atlantic. Over five, 600 ships have crashed and sunk along the coast of North Carolina because of the treacherous currents, the barrier islands, um, the, the shoals are always moving. In fact, they'd have to dig out the channels about once a year just to keep the ships going through because the currents change the, change the island's shape. After a hurricane, you'll get new inlets formed where they build all these lighthouses to help sailors and ships watch out for the reefs, for the currents, for the dangerous parts of the shore, Right? Paul's saying, look, watch it. Because he says, look, see to it, watch that no one takes you captive. If you remember last time we were talking about military terms, we're, we're standing steadfast and having good discipline as, as soldiers for the faith. Well, he uses another military term here and he says, look, be careful that you aren't taking, taken captive. The idea is carrying away spoils. The Greek is kind of interesting. It's a word play. It's carrying away spoils of war. Right? You aren't carried away. Right? When, a, when a battle in those days, you'd have a battle, and the, the winner the, to the victor goes to spoils. Right? They, would, they would take the, the women, the children, the gold, whatever they wanted, they would throw them on their backs, throw them in the carts, and they would take them back with them to their homeland. Right? He says, watch it that you aren't 
carried away. You're carried away from truth to error, right? I love what Second Peter says. For those of you that are there in the, in the home groups, it's great. Um, the, the false teacher says, Peter says about the false teachers, look, they, they promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. Right? So false teachers come into the church or they're out in the world and they're saying, hey, listen to us, follow us. You can have freedom from all those rules and regulations. Right? You can live the way you want to live. You don't have to follow what the Scripture says. You don't have to live a moral and holy life. But in reality, what they're saying is come be dominated and enslaved by your own lust and by your own flesh like we are. Right? So they promise freedom, but in reality, they're slaves. That's what Paul's talking about here. Don't bow from the, the steadfastness, being firmly rooted in the truth, to being carried away by error. Right? Undiscerning saints are like children. In Ephesians 4, children are tossed here and there by waves, and they're carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, by the craftiness in deceitful scheming. Like a ship on the shore just being blown around. I was was watching a movie on Anzac Day recently, and it was about about some Australian troops, and it was really interesting. And it was World War I, and and the two lines were opposed to each other. And the Germans had a fort on this hill, and these Australian, Australian guys that were, that were miners, E-R-S, not minors, O-R-S, they weren't young, they're miners, they, they came to their superiors with this idea of, why don't, since we're already in these trenches, why don't we just dig under the ground, underneath that fort, and we'll put a bunch of explosives in there and blow it up. Sounds like a good idea to me. So they started the process, Right? So rather than let's cross the no man's land and all of us lose our lives, let's dig underneath and we'll create a huge explosion and then we'll attack when the Germans aren't, aren't ready. And it was interesting because it, it took them many months to do this and they're slowly, slowly digging and slowly digging. And in the movie, they, the Germans, some of the German younger officers who are down in the trenches, they hear, sounds like digging, like I hear digging. What's, what's going on? And they, and they start hearing some rumble underneath them and they're like, something's going on. So they go to their head, head superiors, they go to their generals, and the, you know, we see the German generals, they're, they're like, nah, that, that's, that's not the normal way of warfare, that's not really happening, we're, we're just, you know, no, 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 go away. And so it progresses on and on. And finally, the, the lieutenants on the German side, the younger officers, go to their superiors again and say, look, I'm willing to stake my life, my reputation on this. So they say, all right, dig down. They, they dug down, they found the tunnels, and the Germans say, what should we do? Well, in the next day, the movie... The explosion happens, blows up the fort, right? So rather than heed the warnings of the German officers, the younger German officers, the, the, the head generals, they ignored the warnings. They weren't watchful. And as a result, the, the, the British and the Australians, they blew up the fort and then they attacked and they actually they, they conquered more territory in the next few days than they had you know, in six months because of the explosion. But the Germans, they heard it. The younger officers were warning their superiors, but they failed to listen. They failed to heed the warning. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Be watchful. See to it. This is the warning for you guys that, that Satan in this world desires your downfall. Right? And they're going to attack you, and the world's going to attack you, not only with, with temptations for moral failure, but they're going to t- try to tempt you to move away from the truth of the Scriptures, the truth of the faith. Right. When you think about those, Paul says, look, he says, see to it and no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. So when you, when you deal with philosophy, I've already talked about before, this is the means of how they take you into captivity, by the way. It's the love of wisdom. Right? It's, it's claims of insight and knowledge into the nature and reality of things. It's worldviews as systems, right? Whether it's a philosophical system, uh, sorry, all things are a philosophical system. All religions answer basic questions about life and origin of man and our condition and destiny, right? And you think about philosophy, it's deception. Because Paul says, look, it's empty. The only purpose it has is to, is to lead you astray from the truth, 
Right? If Satan's blinding the minds of unbelievers so they can't understand the truth, he wants you to move away from the truth. Any way he can get you to compromise. Okay? And he says, look, you do that, and that philosophy is according to the traditions of men. Right? This, is, this is what this philosophy is. It's, it's the traditions of men. It's human engineered traditions that set themselves apart and over the word of God. Right? In Colossae, there was a, a, a syncretic amalgam of Jewish thought, of Greek thought, of Eastern thought. They kind of melted all together in a buffet. And so it was a syncretism. Right? That's the philosophy. And so it had elements of Jewish thought, elements of even some Christian thought, and then it had some Eastern thought. Kind of sounds like the world we live in, right? right? You kind of melt it all together. I'm my own personal Savior, and I can pick and choose what I want to believe. I love what, when I was thinking about this particular passage, if you'll flip over with me real quick to Mark chapter 7. I'm going to look at Mark chapter 7 for a minute. Because when you want to talk about the traditions of men, there's two aspects to the traditions of men that, that you have to be wary about when you think about philosophy and world systems. Now, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus is, is dealing with the Pharisees and I'm going to just start reading and we'll, we'll deal with it. Just dig, dig into it just a second, excuse me. The Pharisees, verse 1, and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees, verse 3, and all the Jews did not eat unless they carefully washed their hands and observing the traditions of the elders. And when they can't, when, sorry, when they had come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. That's John's parenthesis to kind of help us as we're, as we're reading this. Verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Walk, why do they not live? But they eat their bread with impure hands. And he said to them, Jesus, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites, as it is written, the people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to traditions of men. So this is one way that the traditions of men seek to hold us captive, right? Basically you say, well, this is what God's Word says, well, I can't actually live by that standard, so I'm going to create all these rules and regulations so that that will help me feel like I'm being righteous or that I'm right with God. And that's what the Jews would do, right? So they would say, well, I can't totally obey fully about uh, the Sabbath. Um, so, so in order to obey that rule, the spirit of it, which is a rest, a rest, a day of worship, I'm going to create all these rules where I can only walk so far you know, and then I can only walk so far because if I walk more than a short amount of distance, I'm actually working. But if I go on Saturday and I put uh, like a chair or a rock to sit on a day ahead of time, maybe, maybe I can go a mile, so I'll walk a mile, and then I sit down on that rock, well then, up, oh, well, I've rested so I can walk another mile. And they had all these elaborate rules and regulations so that they could feel like I'm obeying the Sabbath. It was the letter of the law. We see this kind of attitude and we see this self-righteousness in many churches, right? It's about what you wear, right? Pants and skirts, right? That determine your righteousness. It's about what you don't do, right? I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls who do. That's a little southern expression, right? One of the jokes we used to say back home is, you know, why is adultery bad in so many churches, Right? Well, it's bad because it might lead to dancing, you know. So, you know, and that, and that is for a lot of churches. It, it's, they, they major on these things that, that's just traditions of men, right? And then, so, so there's, there's taking the Word of God and there's adding to it and saying, hey, follow these traditions and you are living a righteous life. When in reality, Jesus is saying, look, you're not following the spirit of, of the Word. You're, you're adding to it. You're adding your traditions. But he also says it another way. Look in verse 9. He says, he was saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses says, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of his father and mother will be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever I have will be helped to you as Corban, that is given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything to his father and mother. 
thus invalidating the Word of God by your own tradition which you have handed down. And you do many such things as that. So that is, one, they add stuff to the Word of God, and then they ignore the Word of God for their traditions. So the idea here is, the, the Bible says, honor your father and mother. An aspect of that is looking after your parents when they get old, right? Financially. And so but what, the, what the Pharisees were teaching, what they would say is, well, I have this, this, this set of money, this is, my, this is my savings, and I take the chunk that was going to support my mom and dad, and you know what? This is set aside for the church. I'm going to give this to God. I'm sorry, Mom. I'm sorry, Dad. I don't have any more money to help you because I gave that money to God. Right? Look how special and righteous I am. So he's basically saying, look, there's nothing wrong with giving money to God, but you're not fulfilling the scriptural obligation to honor your father and mother. Plus, all the other finances that they had, they were like, well, you know, that's, that's for myself to do what I please with. The money, sorry, Mom, sorry, Dad, the money that I had for you, I, you know, I gave that to God. So, so not only do you add stuff to Scripture, you, you just ignore Scripture for the sake of your traditions, for the sake of, of what you want. So this is how you can become ensnared and held captive by the traditions of men. And then not only do you held, held captive excuse me, by the traditions of men, you can be held captive by the, the elementary principles of the world. Right? The elementary principles of the world, right? So the elementary here means the basic building blocks of the world. The, when you think about the elements, what are the elements, right? They're, they're what makes up everything in this universe, elements, right? So when he says the elementary principles, he's talking about the basic things that all men are trying to understand, all women are trying to understand, right? We want to know what's the origin of all things? Where do we come from? How did we get to where we are? We see there's evil in the world. How did that happen? Why is the world like it is? Right? This condition. And they say, well, how can, we, how can we change that? How can we better ourselves, better this world? Right? There's a salvation. And ultimately, what happens after I die? Right? What is there after this life? Like All philosophical systems answer these questions. Right? And, and he makes it pl- plain here that it's the elementary principles of the world. This is the fallen world, the world that's energized by Satan. John, 1 John 5, it lies in his hand. 2 Corinthians 4, that, that Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers. He's the God of this age, right? This is a world that is diametrically opposed to Christ and us. So all religions, all philosophical systems answer those questions. It doesn't matter. They're, they're worldviews. So I started thinking about, well, what are some of the, the philosophical systems that, that we're faced with a day-to-day that we don't even think about, right? <clears throat> Existentialism, right? right? It's a huge word, like, well, I don't even know. what existential. It basically means that basically, I'm the arbiter of truth, right? How many people you talk to and you say, well, that's what you believe. That's good for you, but I believe something different. Right? The existentialist, which is so permeable or so, so permeates our society, is that I can believe what I want. There's no abstract truth. Right? It's a philosophical system infiltrated the way people think. Right? Postmodern views, is there's, there's no truth. It's good for you. Yeah, I understand you believe that. No, it's not just about what I believe, it's the truth. You believe it or not. Well, you know, I, I have my own views. Me and Jesus, we're good. You know, I don't need to go to church. Me and him are really good. We kind of hang out on the weekends by ourselves. Oh, yeah, really? Well, that's not what the Bible says. Well, it talks about don't neglect the fellowship. Oh, well, you know, you believe that. I don't really believe that. I've had this discussion with somebody before. Right? So it's the basic building rocks. That's, that's, and then there's, there's evolutionism. Right? You, you, go to, you go to any uni, I've been to uni, you go to any public school, and evolution is taught as fact, even though technically it's a theory. You follow the, the scientific method, right? you have a hypothesis, and then you have a theory, and then you have a law. A law is something that's been proven. Well, evolution is a theory, right? It's an attempt to answer basic questions of life apart from God. They start with the premise that there's no supernatural and God doesn't exist. Well, then how do we come to a knowledge of our existence, right? Darwin was, Darwin was a failed seminary student, right? His parents were believers. He rejected that and he said, well, I want to do what I want to do. I want to live my life without God's demands of my life. So, well, how can I create a system, philosophical system, that explains the origin of all things? 
and the destiny of all things. And that's where you get evolution. And the danger to that is even some in Christian circles have accepted that lie and they, they say, well, maybe we can have a theistic evolution where God kind of orchestrates things, right? But that doesn't work biblically because if you have death, right, then we have death because there's a fall, there's rebellion. If you have death, like a death of all these different animals as they evolve into a greater and greater complexity, if you have death before the fall, then what is the fall, right? What is sin? Why do we need a Savior? See, the system crashes down if you compromise on the truth. You think about environmentalism. Environmentalism is a huge, huge, huge thing today. Uh, Environmentalism in itself, as I was thinking about this, um, there's a great, I encourage you guys to Google it, there's a great um, speech that Michael Crichton, a Jurassic Park creator, he gave a speech before he died about the environmentalism as a religion. Um, Jurassic Park, you know, the na-na-na-na, sorry, that's what my daughter does whenever I say Jurassic Park. So Michael Crichton, right, he, he, he wrote this, and, he, and he's so true, because environmentalism, think about it, it has its own God, it's Mother Earth, right? There was a paradise at one time, they'll say that, well, man and nature lived in harmony, Right? And they'll say, well, there was, they say there's some kind of fall, right? It's our, that we polluted this world, right? It's our actions. And the consequences for that, that fall from this perfect state is, well, there's, the earth is going to be destroyed. There's a doomsday. There's a, there's a flood. The, the ocean's sea levels are going to rise and destroy all things, right? So we're all energy centers, right? We, we commit. Sin and that we use too much energy, that we're the, we're the problem in this world, and you should feel guilty, right? You should feel guilty for how you're living your life, right? Because it's your fault that the earth is, is in a such bad condition. Well, what's the salvation? Well, you confess that it's your fault, right? You, you change your ways, you bring your canvas bags to the grocery store, your penance. Right, your penance is, well, I'm going to pay more to the government. I'm going to give, lose more of my hard-earned money because we're going to go from fossil fuels to fully solar and we're going to have to pay twice as much for it. Right? And then not only is it, is it that, but it's a loss of freedom and control. And then there's prophets to this religion. They fly around the world telling the world how dangerous the situation is. And ultimately, they say that there's going to be a global flood. Like, the sea, like I said before, the sea levels are going to rise. It's a religious system, right? The, the key word is sustainability, right? And you have to pay your penance. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't take care of the planet, right? As Christians, we are stewards, and that's the difference. We're stewards of this earth, right? I, I've, I've talked to environmentalists. They are more upset about the death of a puppy than they are about the aborted millions of babies that are killed every year, right? They're more concerned about somebody cutting down a tree than kids who are starving in Africa, right? They they, they care more about this world than they do about the people because ultimately only the people will survive. In that sense, they got it right. There won't be a global flood because we know that. God's promised Noah and his descendants that never again would he flood the earth. Every time you see a rainbow, it's a remembrance of God's covenant promise promise with us. You see, it's an assault on the truth, and it's seductive, and it's, and it's designed to hold you captive. As believers, we need to be good stewards. There's nothing wrong with recycling, and nothing wrong with solar, those kind of things, don't get me wrong. This earth, Romans 8 says, this earth is groaning and longing for the redemption of the saints. It's a corrupt, chaotic world that's full of sin and that will not see redemption until Jesus Christ returns. Things in this world, nature, environment is going to get worse and worse and worse, ultimately as people get worse and worse and worse, until Christ returns to redeem it and bring in a new heavens and a new earth where you will have a restoration of paradise. So you have this, this philosophical, and I just use that as one example, but you have these philosophical systems that set themselves apart, these worldviews. And Paul continues and he says, look, don't be enslaved to traditions of men, Right? The elementary principles of this world, but he says, rather than Christ. When you substitute something instead of Jesus Christ, you go from what's true to what's false. Now we have, do you have meter sticks here? Is it meter sticks? We have yard sticks. Like growing up, we, we always had a yard stick in the house, right? My parents loved to use it for things other than measuring, if you know what I mean. But you have yard sticks, 
right? Three feet, it's a yard. It was great. You know, you're, you're, you're cutting wood. You want to know, well, how long this fence is? Well, we'll grab the yardstick. We'll get the measuring. Now we have measuring tapes, you know, after we move past the yardstick. But we had this yardstick. It was, a, it was a standard of measurement, right? Jesus Christ and the truth of the Word of God is your yardstick, is your meter stick, is your, the, how you determine what truth is. If it sets itself up against what Scripture teaches, it is false. It is part of the philosophical system of this world. Right? They're seeking to answer the basic questions of life apart from God and His revealed Word. That's why we teach the Word of God. We preach the Word of God. We're a Word-centered church because we want to know, as leaders, and we want you guys to know, what is the truth? How should I live my life? Right? Christ is the standard by which every system must be measured against. So the great danger for us as believers is, not, is to not be watchful when it comes to the truth. Right? We must be living by the truth of the Word of God, walking with Christ, if we're going to recognize error. I was reading in 1938, Adolf Hitler was in power. He had already, he'd already started rebuilding the German military to the point where he was confident of expansion. When he started making desires, public desires for the Sudetenland, which is the border of Czechoslovakia and Germany. There's a huge German population in the Sudetenland. And he basically said, look, if you'll give me the Sudetenland, he's talking to the British and the French, who guaranteed the independence of Czechoslovakia, because if Germany attacked Czechoslovakia, they would have to, have to deal with Britain and France, and he wanted to avoid it. So if you'll give me the Sudetenland, which Germany originally had as land during World War I, so you'll give me that, then I won't ask for anything else. I promise. Fingers behind his back. I promise. Well, Neville Chamberlain decided he would believe Hitler. And he would appease Hitler because the British and the French didn't want war. There's a great picture of Neville Chamberlain after he came back from Germany giving Hitler, giving Germany the Sudetenland. And it has a big picture, Neville Chamberlain, and it said on the newspaper... Peace in our time. Within a year, Hitler, sensing the Allies' reluctance for war and weakness, had invaded Poland. I've read, read countless interviews and countless diaries from his generals that Hitler b- believed that Great Britain and France would not attack him once he invaded Poland because he believed in their weakness. You see... They had a chance. In 1938, while Germany was still weak, the military wasn't completely rebuilt, they had a chance to, to stop Germany in its tracks. Right? They had an opportunity. But that compromise led to World War II, and we all know what happened after that. If they had stood up to him, things could have been different. Brethren, you must walk in Christ, and you must... Be firmly planted, growing your faith, being built up, and growing the assurance of your salvation. And you must be watchful against the philosophies, I mean, the philosophies of this world, the error. Right? How many churches have compromised and don't exist? It's up to us to walk, to be walk, walking with the Lord, and to be watchful. That's discipleship. So my challenge to you is. Don't be deceived. Don't be ensnared. Don't be held captivity to philosophy. Don't compromise the truth. Stand firm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the instruction. What great challenge it is to us to understand where we find the truth and what the truth is. Help us to understand the reality of our existence according to your standards, according to your views, according to your word. Lord, give us the strength to resist temptation to compromise, to stand firm against the ideas and 
philosophical standards and philosophical worldviews of this world that seek to ensnare us, help us resist the, the designs of Satan who desires our downfall. Give us strength, give us peace, give us a joy. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to resist, we don't have to walk by ourselves, for have you who indwelled us, and it's in you we will take the stand and we will walk with you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.